0: The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment.
1: Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naaman, your host. Today's guest is New York Times health columnist Jane Brody. Jane Brody is the author of 10 books, including Jane Brody's Good Food Book and Jane Brody's Nutrition Book, and she's here on Health Watch today to discuss her latest book, Jane Brody's Guide to the Great Beyond, a practical primer to help you and your loved ones prepare medically, legally, and emotionally for the end of life. If you'd like to join the conversation here on Health Watch, the number is 503-231-8187. Welcome to Health Watch, Jane Brody. I'm
0: delighted to be with you.
1: Well, let's uh, start with uh, telling our listeners a little bit about how you came to write a book on this topic about preparing for um, the end of our lives.
0: Well, for one thing, um, birth, living, and death are all in a spectrum, and although I have been best known for my writings on health and fitness and nutrition for the last 45 years, um, it is very much within keeping of these health messages to discuss a healthy way to die Uh, because we will all be there one of these days. And the better prepared you are in advance of that, uh, the easier it is not just for the person who's dying but also for the person's survivors, the loved ones, who have to deal with the issues that are left behind.
1: And and do you have a theory on why um, these discussions don't happen more often and earlier?
0: I think that they don't happen because we have done two things. We have insulated uh, families from death. We, people die in institutional settings, not surrounded by families, not in home settings. Although this is happening a little bit more now, uh, most of us have grown up with very much detached from death. We did not allow our children to see. Uh, people who were dying, we did not elect, let them even go to funerals or, or, or gravesites or anything of that sort. Uh, so we have divorced death from life. Uh, and the other thing is that we have raised an entire generation of people with the belief that medicine can cure everything, that medicine can perform miracles, and um, that there's always some miracle around the corner that will keep us going. Uh And if we just keep going long enough, that miracle will find us. And these things are simply not true.
1: I think uh, uh, your second point is evidenced a lot by how much money is actually spent in the final days or months of, of a person's life to keep them alive.
0: Well, the, the really terrifying thing, and and now that we have this incredible uh, economic crisis in this country and a president who's concerned about reducing health care costs, the, most, the simplest and the most effective and quickest reduction in health care costs can be made by reducing the costs of the last week of life, when people who everybody knows is, that people are dying, Everybody knows that there is no cure for this condition. And yet more money is spent by Medicare in the last week of life than is spent in the entire person's lifespan from 65 until that last week. That's, so, you a, that's know, an incredible we can, fact. We can save billions, billions of dollars overnight in health care costs simply by reducing futile treatments in the last week of life.
1: So it sounds like some different protocols need to be developed for uh, how both how doctors and patients view that last week.
0: That's absolutely true. And doctors are not helping the situation because um, hospitals don't get paid when people die. They only get paid for keeping them in the hospital. So hospitals have a vested interest in keeping people alive for as long as possible so they get paid more money. And, and doctors are, not every one of them, of course, but many of them... Um, are not schooled in how to accept death as a part of life. That they have been trained to preserve life, and and not how to deal with death.
1: Well, you say in, you say in your preface that preparing for the end of life goes farther than. Willing your estate to your loved ones or signing an organ donor card or picking out a burial plot. So what, what do you mean by that? What, what other things does preparing well, for the end of life entail?
0: The most critical thing that people need to do is to complete a proper living will. And I say proper and I have an entire chapter on how to do it properly so that the medical profession can understand what you mean when you say I do or do not want certain measures done um, if, if you cannot speak for yourself at the time. And the second critical thing is to assign two people to be your healthcare care proxies, to be your healthcare care agent, and that person and those two people will stand for you when you cannot speak for yourself. They are, in effect, the patient under the eyes of the law. And those two measures are the most critical things to do. But there are other things that are less clinical, in a sense, that I think are equally important, and that is leaving a lasting legacy, Uh, leaving behind things that people can benefit from your life experience, from what you've observed, what you've experienced, the values that you've established, um, whatever you want to leave behind, even if it's just recipes, uh, you know, something that you've made by hand, uh, a little poem that you wrote, uh, a reminiscence of, of your early childhood. There, these lasting legacies can mean so much to the people you leave behind. And they can only be done while you're still alive and, and cognitively functioning.
1: Sure. Uh, and, and you mentioned doing a proper living well. Uh, are there some common mistakes people make when they're trying to do a living well?
0: There are many, many mistakes because, let's face it, there's no way not even a physician can anticipate all the contingencies that may occur um, at, at any point in a person's life. And so there's no way that you can spell out every single possible thing. But you can spell out a philosophy if there is no hope for recovery. There is no hope for return to meaningful life. Do not. Do not put in a feeding tube. Do not put me on a ventilator. Um, Or maybe you want to be have all those things done and one of the biggest mistakes that's made is people who say do not resuscitate i do not want to be resuscitated you know if i'm if uh, if it looks like i'm dying you know just let me die well let's say you have a cancer that will eventually kill you not next week not next month maybe not even next year but maybe three years later Um, but in the meantime you develop pneumonia and you develop a severe pneumonia that's That requires hospitalization. Do you want not to be put on a ventilator and given antibiotics um, to cure your pneumonia uh, when you can probably live well for the next several years? No. You, You know, the do not resuscitate order has to be very carefully spelled out. It's under what circumstances you do not want to be resuscitated.
1: We're talking today with Jane Brody about her book, Jane Brody's Guide to the Great Beyond, A Practical Primer to Help You and Your Loved Ones Prepare Medically, Legally, and Emotionally for the End of Life. The number here at the studio is 503-231-8187. You talk a little bit in your book, Jane, about uh, life support and some of the myths around life support. Could you could you talk a little bit with us about that?
0: Sure. Um, there's a, I have a whole chapter on coma, and because people misunderstand what coma is all about, uh, most most what most people know about coma comes from movies and television shows, uh, which glamorize the the uh, chances of a person emerging from a coma and returning to their former self. Uh, well, we have these cases that have occurred that have. Re- you know, uh, been very well publicized, like Terry Schiavo in Florida, who lived 26 years. I mean, something sorry, she lived 15 years. She was 26 years old when she fell into a coma. She had no cognitive function in her brain. Her, she could not ever think. She could not ever return to be the person that she once was. And yet, she was kept alive, so to speak, by a feeding tube for 15 years while her family fought with each other and in the courts at great expense um, and enormous emotional expense uh, to disconnect her from this feeding tube. And that was all because she had never anticipated that she might fall into this coma situation um, when she was 26 years old. And that's why I say it's very important to prepare now, however young you may be, however healthy you may now be. The sooner you do this in advance, the better for everybody.
1: Are, are there some guidelines for how to recognize when, when further treatment is not going to benefit a person?
0: Well, th- there's a very simple, simple definition of futile treatment. And futile treatment is when the treatment is unlikely to do the patient any good and is likely to make the situation worse. And that is that is what's happening. That is where that huge expense comes. It's in the last week of life when people receive these futile treatments. um, That, for example, when a person is near death, putting in a feeding tube is not only not beneficial; it's actually harmful because it can it can. It can cause all sorts of bloating and miserable discomfort um, and make the person feel much worse and not better.
1: Well, you mentioned earlier the profit motive for hospitals, and that certainly seems to confuse the picture enormously. And Mm -hmm. I know uh, one of the only areas that physicians make money off of is the administration of chemotherapy. And they've Mm -hmm. shown that that it's still administered to people with cancers that have not been shown to benefit from chemo, mm-hmm. and I was wondering if that was—is—is um, is that part of the extra cost? Do you think that's happening at the end of life if someone has well, an, an sure. incurable? Well, I mean,
0: you know, it's up to the patient to say whether that whether they want to continue with that treatment or not. But when it's foisted upon them by a physician who who really should know better, then that then that's a mistake. Um, There comes a point, and I have witnessed this with several people that I knew very well, where the good physician will say, you know, further treatment with these drugs is not going to help you, and it will probably make you feel a lot worse. Let's make you as comfortable as possible. Let's put you in a hospice situation so that all your symptoms can be taken care of with comfort, in mind, and not just physical comfort, but spiritual comfort, um, emotional comfort, every kind of need that a, that a dying patient is likely to have can be treated in a hospice situation. And it doesn't have to be in a hospice facility. It can be done at home. And the amazing thing is that this is free treatment, free F R E E. I cannot emphasize this strongly enough. And yet, only half the patients who could benefit from hospice currently take advantage of it. Well,
1: why do so many people spend their last days not treating their pain adequately, or why why isn't it why isn't it adequately um, medicated at the it, at the end of life?
0: It's it's really a crime, isn't it? It's a crime against humanity. Um, most major medical centers have pain. Um, centers and they have specialists who deal with pain and yet doctors are reluctant to call in the specialist when when it's necessary. Um, You, I'm sure, have heard, as I have heard many times over, I can't give him any more pain medication. It'll kill him. Well, a person is dying or it'll It'll, it, he'll become addicted. A person who's dying doesn't matter whether the person becomes addicted or doesn't become addicted. The most important thing for that person is to die in comfort and be able to communicate with family members and loved ones. Um, it's, you can't communicate effectively when you're in terrible pain. Uh, there is no excuse for undertreatment of pain. And one of the problems is that palliative care which is a growing phenomenon now in hospitals around the country, is still not big enough. And palliative care means that attention is paid to comfort, to the patient's symptoms, whether that patient is likely to recover or that patient is dying. It doesn't really matter. Palliative care should be the right of every patient. And the more we can do to foster this, the better everybody will be.
1: Well, here in Oregon, Jane, we have uh, voted for assisted suicide, and I was curious if you have a stance on that or, or you see a place for that uh, in, in the end-of-life care.
0: Yes, and I don't call it assisted suicide. I call it assisted dying. I mean, suicide is a pejorative word in our culture. Um th- People people like to hide the fact that somebody committed suicide, or they don't get they don't get the the survivors don't get the life insurance policy if, if uh, the person commits suicide, which is insanity when the person is dying anyway. Um, there, you know, in Oregon and in the state of Washington, there are legal ways for a physician to help a patient die if that patient really has met the criteria for. Um, an end-of-life issue, and is not asking for assistance because they're depressed. I mean, this is a very important issue. Depression can be dealt with uh, through palliative care, and that should not be the reason that the person is dying, that the person uh, requests assist in dying. Um, But for all the rest of the people in this country who do not have Oregon's incredible law, there is a way to help that they can die peacefully without having a doctor help them, and that is by refusing food. And the interesting thing is that every nurse that I've spoken to and every family that I've spoken to who has witnessed a death associated with a refusal to eat um, has said it is a very peaceful and painless, easy way to assist dying. And that is available to everyone. And, again, I emphasize that this should not happen because the person is depressed. It should only happen when there is absolutely no point in continuing life any longer. And, and people can see for themselves that, that it is pointless to pursue further um, prolongation of life.
1: Let's take our first caller. Welcome to Health Watch. You're on the air with Jane Brody.
0: Thank you, Doctor. Uh, I'm curious. You've you talked about palliative care, and the one of the reasons we've done that in Oregon, of course, is because pain medication has not been administered. Then we became the number one morphine administerer at the end of life. But what about what about the times? And I, I personally have this fear. What about the times when a, a human being just drifts away? Uh, And and, and rather than getting lost, I mean, uh, uh, the end of life, rather than, you know, walking away from the house and getting lost and uh, the Alzheimer's and so forth, just one thing is Alzheimer's. But other times are are dementia generally. Uh, What what kind of preparations can we personally make, since I might even have this fear, but but also can we make for our elders and our parents as they come along?
1: That's a great question.
0: That I as I as I understand it what you're asking is how do you prepare when a, when when dementia is a risk and are you there we're here yes okay that um, this is why it's so important to do this early because when you see the early signs of dementia coming on that is critical that all of these steps measures be put in place um, so that you know, for example, what what my friend did when her mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and had to be put in a nursing home after a while because she was not safe any other place. Um, it was clearly stated on every medical form and to every one of her caretakers in the nursing home and the physician and the director and every nurse and everybody that when she stops eating, she is not to be fitted with a feeding tube when she stops eating let her go and that is exactly what happened Um, because if this woman had been fitted with a feeding tube at that point she could have lived another 10 years not knowing who she was not knowing anybody in her family not knowing where she was or why she was alive and that is you know that's that is criminal in and of itself
1: well that was a great question um one of the things jane that i really love about your book the guide to the great beyond is you you make an attempt to demystify death Mm -hmm. and um you have a section where you talk about um what actually happens physically and mentally when death is near and i was i was wondering if you could just touch on that briefly
0: well for one thing people often move into themselves when they're when death is near they 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 seem to retreat into an inner person, and attempting to bring that person out at that point is pointless because it's not going to work. So that's one thing. And another thing is no food or drink orally or feeding tubes or IVs. When a person is actively dying, these things are not only not beneficial, they actually are harmful and can hasten death in an uncomfortable way. Um, you Very often you see uh, when a person is near death, they get cold uh, they they seem to be very pale and and they may even shiver but uh, piling on the blankets is a mistake under those situations you You would think that if you were a regular, healthy normal surviving person you and you're cold you'd want to be covered with blankets but the person who is dying those blankets are kind of smothering and 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 very uncomfortable Uh, oxygen masks are a big mistake when you see labored breathing when you see labored breathing the thing to do is to open the window turn on a fan create space around the person and 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 give morphine morphine um, is a wonderful uh, respiratory assist and reduces the anxiety associated with breathing difficulties. So there are many, many things that, that can be done. But the, the one thing that I think is really important that some people forget, and, and that is don't assume that the dying person can't hear what you say because the very last sense to leave the body is the sense of hearing. And so don't say anything that you don't want that person to hear before that person dies.
1: well you actually address that issue even more fully about what to what not to say and what to say to someone who's dying or to or if someone has just died to to their family
0: that's uh, right I have an entire chapter on on speaking about um, both speaking to people who are dying and speaking to uh, people who are grieving and it, it, it's interesting. I mean, I think the most important thing to say to a person who is dying is we love you. We we so enjoyed having you with us. Um, we will miss you, but we will, we will go on. You know, you have given us whatever it is we've gotten from you from, during life will be valuable to us as we go on without you. Um, and to focus on the person. Uh, what is the person feeling what does the person want to say what are the last wishes what are what are the things they want to be remembered by um you know focus on the person and that's the that's the critical thing
1: you mentioned earlier in the show that the two most important things are to to do a proper living will and to to choose two health proxies Mm -hmm. is the living will the place where you would express your wishes around um burial and funeral
0: not usually, no, um, but that certainly should be discussed with your next of kin because once you die, you have absolutely no right to your body. I mean, that may sound like a, a, a solecism, but, but it's in fact true that anything you specified about how you wanted your remains treated um, after you die is totally ignored by the law. The next of kin has the right to your body. And makes that final decision, so the, the, if if you have strong feelings about how you want your body used, um, whether you want organs donated, whether you want to donate your entire body to a medical school so that students can learn from you and the interesting thing is that that is the cheapest way to die. Medical schools if you arrange this in advance and and that is critical because can it 's too late to do it after you've died. Uh, arrange it in advance with a medical school they will pick up your body and do a light embalming so that students can learn from you um when the students are finished learning from you and and anybody else is finished learning from you uh, that body is cremated and the remains are returned to the next of kin uh or if you don't want them back they can be scattered at sea they they Various things can be done with them, but at, at no expense to the survivors, which is the critical critical thing. Uh, but these things have to be worked out with your next of kin. If your next of kin says, no, I want to do a full-blown funeral with a casket and the whole nine yards, and it's really important for them to have some idea of what this is going to cost. Because an, even an inexpensive funeral nowadays costs around $8,000. And wouldn't that be better spent on some child's college education?
1: You you also mentioned Jane that that uh, you recommend that people get autopsies as more of a regular um, habit, and I was curious what the rationale was behind
0: that. Well, autopsy is critical. Uh, you know, when you go into a new physician's office and you fill out a, a medical history form, you are invariably asked about the diseases that your your Family members, your mother and father, maybe even your siblings, may have or have had, and what they died of. Um, and if you don't know what the what your parents died of, then you can't properly fill out that form. That information is very important hint to your physician as to what you may be at risk for. So that you know, and and not only you, but your your children uh, down the line. Things tend to run in families, and, and it's important to know what was the real cause of death. And very often what you think was the cause of death while a person was alive turns out not to be, not to be the actual cause of death. Um, Are they expensive? They co- they now cost about $2,000. It used to be that um, that hospitals did autopsies automatically automatically, And in some circumstances, they are still done automatically at no expense to the family. Uh, When when the death is unobserved, um, it's supposed to be by law. It's supposed to be autopsied. Uh, When when there's uh, suspicion of foul play, when there's when you have no idea what happened. you know, you walk into a into a person's house and you find them dead in bed, and you have no idea how this happened. Were they were they poisoned? Were they shot? Were they did they have a heart attack, a stroke, or what have you? And under those circumstances, autopsies should be automatically done. But um, but it's also important to to have it done even when you think you know what the cause of death was, because it may not be.
1: And does the guide to the Great Beyond have anything that addresses the grief of of people uh, left behind and how to how to cope with it?
0: Absolutely. I have a, a tremendous chapter on grief. Um, grief is not a disease. Grief is a normal human emotion that is that occurs in response to a devastating loss, so that everyone has the right to grieve and and grief, should be expected when you have when you've suffered a, a major loss um but unlike uh the five stages that elizabeth kubler ross enumerated the five stages of, of of grieving denial anger bargaining depression and finally acceptance um very few people who were grieving go through these stages in that nice little neat order and some people find it very very difficult to come to finally accept it accept that loss um they remain stuck in anger uh or they become depressed or they simply deny that this ever really happened and there are people who suffer from complicated grief that that can cause uh for example a uh, A very wonderful um, person that I knew who was the head of a major university died of complicated grief. He died of a heart attack exactly a year after his wife had died that he had very much loved and been very, very close to. um, this, This person really needed psychiatric treatment and didn't get it. And uh, when, when grief becomes prolonged and complicated and people can't seem to emerge from the, the darkest moments, uh, treatment is really critical.
1: Jane, it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today.
0: Thank you so much.
1: We were talking today with Jane Brody, the author of Jane Brody's Guide to the Great Beyond, a practical primer to help you and your loved ones prepare medically, legally, and emotionally for the end of life. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine.